But what what are your thoughts on the on the light public housing scheme? <laughs> uh, this is a little bit too expensive. Uh, but since uh, people uh, in Hong Kong are so eager to have the housing problem solved as soon as possible, then we have to pay the price. But uh, uh, we can do it uh, in a less expensive way uh, by using uh, those uh, factory building or vacant commercial building and convert into temporary public housing. Okay, well, thank you very much, Mr. Shing, Mr. Shing. Good to talk to you. That's Shi Wing Ching, who is founder and chief executive of the Centerline Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. In the markets right now, the SX200 in Australia up 0.4 percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 0.2%. The Cosby is up over 1% in South Korea. Uh, and it looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 180 points at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning for the final Money Talk of the week. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with uh, Janice Wong and Danny Gittings this morning. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast for today. Uh, mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 23 degrees. And then the outlook is for windier and cooler weather with a few rain patches in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 20 degrees and it's 77% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. A property and investment analyst has welcomed the news that the U.S. Federal Reserve is slowing the pace of U.S. rate hikes. The Fed raised interest rates by 0.25 percentage points, the smallest increase since last March. Hannah Jiang, the head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers Hong Kong, said rising interest rates had put homeowners under pressure. She said the 12,000 cases of negative equity in Hong Kong was relatively small compared to 106,000 cases in 2003 during the SARS epidemic. But she also warned that property prices had risen over the years, so the sums of money had tripled. The value at that moment was only $24 billion in terms of aggregated value of those negative equity. But in this time, 2022 fourth quarter, the value is $66 Turning overseas now, and up to half a million workers in Britain have been taking part in strikes, causing major disruption to education, transport and other services. It's thought to be the biggest industrial action in the UK in a decade. The British government argues that wage rises are unaffordable and would only make current high inflation worse. Here's the BBC's Zoe Conway. Today's strike action was coordinated by seven different trade unions. There were picket lines at airports, railway stations, universities, job centres and even the British Museum. The effect was widespread. What's hard to ignore is the relentlessness. There's only one day next week when NHS staff in England and Wales aren't on strike. Monday, we'll see one of the biggest walkouts in the history of the health service involving ambulance workers and nurses. The funeral has taken place of Tyree Nichols, who died after being beaten by police officers during a traffic stop in the US city of Memphis. Graphic footage showed him being punched, kicked and hit with a baton. Five officers involved in the incident incident have been arrested on charges, including second-degree murder. The vice president, Kamala Harris, addressed the congregation. This violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. 
was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? Was he not also entitled to the right to be safe? Finally, President Biden's lawyer has said a search of the president's beach house in Delaware has concluded with no documents with classified markings found. Federal officers had been searching the premises after classified documents from his time as vice president were found at other properties linked to him. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Danny Gittings. On today's program, we're talking about the future of Hong Kong's oldest mode of public transport. Fares on the Star Ferry will go up by more than 50% starting in April as its debt-ridden operator struggles to stay afloat. It wanted to double fares, but the government decided that was too much for the public to bear and approved a scaled-down version. Still, a weekday journey between Chimsha Chui and Central Awan Chai will go up to $5 per trip for adult passengers, up from $3.20. Hot children's tickets will rise by $1. Weekend adult tickets will go from $4.20 to $6.50. So is this a good balance? Can the fare rises keep the iconic ferry on solid ground? And can it turn to any other sources of revenue? After 9am, we'll look at what the newly set up task force on promoting and branding Hong Kong will do. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have Alok Jane, Managing Director of TransConsult Asia and Professor Stephen Chung, the Chairman of the Transport Advisory Committee. Good morning, Mr Jane. Good morning, Janice. And good morning to you, Professor Chung. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, now, um, looking at the level of fare increase, Professor Chung, do you think it's enough to save uh, the Star Ferry? Uh, we have uh, considered several factors, including uh, the financial situation of Star Ferry, and we also look at the forecast of changes in operating costs, revenue, and returns and the past performance and provision of ferry services. And importantly, we also consider the public acceptability of the proposed fare. And we think uh, this, uh, this proposed fare adjustment could help the staff ferry uh, in the short run. How about the uh, fares for old people? Uh, currently, I think old people can ride on the staff ferry for free. Is that going to change under this adjustment? Yeah. We propose that the, the eligible elderly people will only have to pay the $2 per trip under the government public transport fare concession scheme. And the elderly uh, elig- uh, eligible persons with disability, uh, uh, and also for, for this category of people. So they fall within the government concession plan, which means $2 per trip. But that does still mean the current, uh, the current scheme where they can travel for, for free will disappear. Yeah. All right, Professor Chung, you, you said um, the, uh, the fare increase will help the staff ferry in the short run. And what about the long run? I think uh, we consider the change, uh, what happened to Hong Kong in the year 2020 and 2021 
uh, we hope that that will be only a temporary one shot, uh, one one time shot uh, to the economy. Uh, with uh, with the with with the opening of the border, the tourists uh, start to come back into Hong Kong, and the number of tourists starting to get uh, to, to get increase. So uh, that will be more commuter using uh, the South Area service. When we look at the numbers. Uh, in 2018, uh, comparing to the numbers of commuter in 2021, uh, there has been a substantial decline in term numbers. We are talking about almost 50% uh, decrease. So uh, with the tourists started coming back to Hong Kong, uh, we hope that the situation will will get better in the short run. All right, Professor Cheng, you just mentioned uh, tourist numbers. I have a message here from our listener, Marcus, and uh, he doesn't sound as optimistic as uh, as you. He says uh, that the Star Ferry is doomed unless the tourists come back, and they ain't coming back with a mask ban. I think uh, he means uh, a mask mandate in in place. Um, Mr. Jane, does he have a point? Uh, Well, I don't think it's a mask issue. Sorry, um, Sorry, I I don't think it's a mask mask issue as much, uh, but I think fundamentally number of what we have to look at is how many tourists were actually using the Star Ferry, and and that number was still in a in around 10% or so. So the whole public transport of Hong Kong, the tourists use only 8% of the ridership was coming from tourists. This is pre-COVID, and and I don't think that has that will substantially change going forward. So it is going to help, but not to an extent where. Star Ferry would be out of its financial troubles. Uh, so I don't think reliance on tourists alone would, would solve the problem. But that's a problem then, isn't it? Because the Star Ferry is, these days is so much less convenient in its location as a, uh, if you're actually, um, you, you're planning to cross the harbour for, unless you're, you're going to um, to IFC or something like that. So um, it's difficult to imagine regular custom um, being enough to support the, the, the Star Ferry. Absolutely, Danny. That has been the problem. It's the accessibility of the ferry services, and also the ferry services have uh, reduced the frequency. And in Hong Kong, uh, one of the things that I have learned in the last 30 years is that people don't like less frequent services. People like frequent services. The whole success of MTRC relies on the fact that it comes every two minutes or less than two minutes. And, and I think that is what is needed for Star Ferry. They need to improve the frequency so people don't have to wait 15, 20 minutes before they can get on the boat. But that's a sort of a vicious circle, isn't it? Because you have fewer people riding the Star Ferry, and so like any other public transport operator, they, they reduce the frequency. Um, yeah. And uh, they can't really justify adding more, frequent, more boats back when, when the passenger numbers are relatively low. Well, uh, yeah, and it's only if they increase the frequency, then then only the passengers will come back. I think that's uh, and also the convenience of the ferry pier. Uh, I think the the Wan Chai one, uh, the way it has been relocated further up, um, you know, on the on the harbour road. Uh, I don't think it's convenient anymore. It's not connected. Uh, even coming from the MTR station to uh, the Star Ferry is not very convenient at the moment. All right. So, Professor Chung, what was your view? I mean, uh, Mr. Jane here, he just said uh, that uh, the 8, 8% of uh, Star Ferry's ridership is made up of tourists. I mean, can, can Star Ferry really rely on a rebound in the, in the Hong Kong's tourism sector? Well, first of all, we, uh, all of us, we don't have a crystal ball. Uh, what will happen, you know, in a couple of, uh, in, in the future couple of years, you know, whether tourists will come back, whether tourists will will, will use this icon service of Star Ferry 
kind of icons of it, so Hong Kong, you know, uh, to try to try low. But I agree uh, that uh, the the convenience, the connectivity, uh, is a major issue of the staff area because we don't see a lot of commuter, uh, a lot of people taking the staff area. Once uh, you know they move to here, uh, not only in Wan Chai in Central as well. So uh, the staff area operation, uh, we cannot only rely on a fair level. We we also consider the non-fair revenue. I think that's important because they're, they're managing uh, the peer facility, including the shoppings, uh, including the catering facility. Uh, I think how can they revitalize? How can they innovate? And how can they make the area more trendy? Trendy what? Uh, of, of the peers. I think that that's an important issue. You know, what? they they can't they cannot only look at. Level. What, what do you think of their plan to turn it into a fisherman's wharf area like in San yeah. Francisco? Well, one, 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 one of the possibilities, because I believe there will be new buildings uh, will be built in the area in, around, around the central pier. And then I, I really hope that there will be more connectivities uh, between all these uh, facilities, you know, including the piers. Of, uh, and then people, I think there will be a success uh, in, in the future. Uh, the staff ferry not only attract people using, uh, not only attracting commuter to use a ferry service. I mean, commu- uh, they can attract people to go there uh, to shop and to dine and to have fun. I think that that how do we revitalize the whole areas? I think that's that's a, that's an important issue here. Uh, Alok Jane, how, how about this idea to make it Hong Kong's Fisherman's Wharf, um, modeled on the sort of successful waterfront area in San Francisco? Is that realistic? Well, honestly, the, to me, in, in Hong Kong, everything end of the day comes down to a property development project. So I think that's what we are talking about. We are just talking about building a new shopping mall around Star Ferry Piers. And, and I mean, I'm not against the idea, but it fundamentally takes, us away, takes away the focus away from the providing a good transport service to the commuters in Hong Kong. And I feel that ultimately the success of a transport service lies on the fact that we provide a fast, frequent um, you know, service, convenient service to people. Uh, and that aim uh, should be the driving force. And everything else around that uh, is fine. I mean, uh, as long as they, they provide a good service. But I think just for the mere purpose of creating more revenue, if we just build a new shopping mall, let's say at the Star Ferry Pier in Chim Sachoy, that's not, I mean, there's a ocean terminal right there already. It's not going to change fundamentally the way things work unless you know, there are special concessions made. So I think in a way uh, that property development project is uh, is good to have as non-fair revenue, as you want to label it, but it is not fundamental to the rescue of a transport service. You're a transport man, aren't you? So you still look at the, the staff very, very much in terms of um, actually providing a transport service. I'm, I'm just wondering whether, whether that is really realistic to ever expect the transport uh, the Star Ferry to raise enough money from passengers to, to cover its cost in this location? But can, can well, I it can be done. Oh, but, yeah. but I, I feel that there, there needs to be a bit of a reform of Star Ferry. Uh, the quality of boats has to uh, get better. Please ID D0060. Okay, I think uh, if we um, can go to uh, Stephen, Stephen Chung, Please Professor Chung. Professor yeah. Chung. I, I think the commercial uh, venture, they are not mutually exclusive. 
and I, uh, we can see a success in the public transport uh, in Hong Kong, such as MCL as well. So uh, I, I, I really hope that they, they can, they can, these two factors can generate synergies. You know, in, 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 on one hand, if you have a very good uh, and very successful uh, commercial development, then these success can actually filter the benefits into the public service. So I don't see they are mutually mutually exclusive. As far as, as far as I understand, uh, Professor Chung, the, the outlying ferries, they've ne- the outlying ferries to Lama and so on, they, they've never um, they've never covered their costs just on the on the fares. They rely on property development. So um, we, there's, there's no reason why the Star Ferry should be any different. And I I understand that they're, they're operating, uh, you know, uh, with a different model. And let let let's stick with the uh, let's, let's stick with the, this proposal right now, the fair proposal, uh, to see how it turns out you know, in, a, in a couple of years' time. I really hope uh, people will go back to, take, to use the fast ferry service and uh, bear in mind that we still have uh, local people relying on the stop service you know, for their day-to-day, uh, day-to-day transport. So uh, I, hope, I hope the public can accept uh, what we propose, uh, the fair increase, not too expensive, and uh, we hope uh, Hong Kong's economy will, will get back to the normal level. Right. And Professor Chung, apart from um, what you're talking about, uh, focusing on non-fair revenue, what about yeah. other suggestions? What about um, possibly adding another new route, for example, to Kai Tak, which is uh, supposed to be Hong Kong's new uh, central business district? Is that possible? Well, everything is possible. We, know we, we always welcome good uh, ideas and good comments. Uh, I think that the, as long as that this kind of public transport service can facilitate people uh, people movement or people mobility, this is something we are, we are looking at. And how about uh, the West Kowloon Reclamation? I mean, that's uh, actually one of the most difficult areas to access by public transport at the moment. I, I don't think there are any ferry piers there, but if you were really talking about the Star Ferry and Hong Kong's, um, Hong Kong's future, you'd, you'd think about a route to the West Kowloon Reclamation. Well, when I when I when uh, I, I I got some involved, I have some involvement in the West Kowloon project. I remember I remember that time in the proposal, they proposed a water taxi scheme. I remember, so I really hope that what we proposed at that time about more than ten years ago can still be implemented. So, in addition to the stuff, that that could be a good idea as well. There's, should, should be a good plus. Why not? Now, I think uh, Alok Jain is back with us. Um, Alok Jain, uh, water taxis? Well, I, I won't even go into water taxi at the moment because what we are running in Hong Kong at the moment in the name of water taxi is not a taxi at all. It is just a ferry service, which is a, a tourist coach, like a tourist coach. It is running in the harbour. Uh, it's nowhere close to what water taxi uh, implies, um, you know, in the rest of the world. So I think that's a misnomer. And I don't think that's going to help anybody anytime soon. It has low capacity. It is underutilized. It runs too infrequently. So, uh, honestly, I don't have very high hopes with the water taxi in the way currently uh, that is operating. But, yes, ferry services, extensively, Hong Kong has a great uh, water, water uh, you know, great harbor and lot of opportunities to improve the water transport. This is an area which we have underexplored always. 
and I think certainly uh, that should be explored within Hong Kong. Other thing, I mean, one thing which I want to mention <coughs> is that the passenger numbers are not a constant number. So you can't just say what is the current passenger number and multiply that by $5 and that is going to be the future revenue. The passenger numbers are going to come down significantly with this fare increase. And ultimately the revenue increase is not going to be as much as everybody anticipates. So that reduction is going to offset some of these big increases because people are now the price sensitive people who are currently using Star Ferry services, they see little differential between an MTR service, which is running every 90 seconds, uh, to a Star Ferry, which runs every 20 minutes. So people would shift and, and say, that if there's no big difference in price, why should I go to Star Ferry, walk so much, and why should I take the ferry service? And I think that is really what has been the pain of Star Ferry in the past two. Hong Kong is not that price sensitive. Hong Kong is very service sensitive. So unless they improve the service, I don't see uh, them coming out of this hole at the moment, you know, even with the price increases. All right. I have an email here from our listener, John. His, uh, he wants to share his view about the uh, fare increase. He says, um, as you reported this morning, the Star Ferry will hike fares by as much as 50%. In the 1970s, it would cost you 10 cents to uh, travel on the upper deck from Central to Chimsha Chu. The company is now looking to charge patrons $6.50 on the weekend. I can't think of any other service or product in Hong Kong which has increased its prices by 65 times over the past 50 years. And that doesn't even take into account that the journey time is at least 25% shorter nowadays after the pier was relocated located a few years ago. Instead of increasing fares, its owner should freeze fares and subsidize the business. And uh, that's uh, from John, our listener. Professor Chang, what's your view on uh, his suggestion? I mean, I know earlier you said that you hope uh, people would accept the fare increase. And uh, now here, um, our listener, John, he says uh, maybe fares should be freeze. I mean, they should so freeze the fares. I, I understand because when I was a kid, when my father asked me to buy a uh, newspaper from the newsstand. I only pay 10 cents. Prices goes up anyway. Salary goes up. This is the reality. We see inflation every year. I don't think we can expect free services uh, in Hong Kong. I mean, our, the principle of Hong Kong issues are pay. So I I still consider South Ferry is actually the most affordable means of course harbor public transport with fares about 30% to 50% lower than MCL and the franchise versus fare. So I think that we, we should look at the problem, you know, uh, we should look at the issue uh, with a holistic view, with a holistic angle. From what you were saying earlier, you think the Star Ferries should be able to cover its costs and that um, uh, you were rejected, as I mentioned, the outline island uh, ferries that traditionally have been subsidised by property development. You're saying you don't need that model for the Star Ferry. The Star Ferry should be able to cover its costs, Professor Chen. Yeah, because I think the Star Ferry not only should not only look at the fair level, they should look at the non-fair incomes as well, you know, how they, how they can operate. Uh, you know, the peer facility in a much efficient way, how, they, how can they innovate and rejuvenize the peer facility, including shops there, including catering facility, uh, with the hope that there will be more connectivity uh, between the peer and the new building built in the areas. I think that, that should be the way to go. 
What is the situation? Do you know? Do they get the peers rent free? Um, do they get concessions on, on, the, on the peers, or they have to pay? They have to pay the government for the peers. I think the government should look at it as well. It's not only the star ferry company, you know, uh, in, in by itself to look at all these options. I think uh, the fair concessions, the rent, how then, how what, how what are the degree of freedoms the star ferry can operate? Uh, the peers building. I think that. The government should help as well. I think the government should support the Star Ferry because, at the end of the day, Star Ferry, in my view, is a very important icon of our court. Isn't it true, uh, Professor Chung? Yeah, the, the government would, the government would never uh, never allow the Star Ferry to close down. I mean, when you <coughs> you're talking about reviving tourism to Hong Kong, you're not going to allow the Star Ferry to close down. Yeah, exactly. I agree totally. <laughs> Uh, and look, Jane, earlier on the, we, we were talking about pricing for Star Ferry rides, and uh, the issue is, isn't it, don't you, you have two separate markets with, um, and pricing really could be rather different in them. Uh, if you're a tourist in Hong Kong, you're probably quite willing to, if you've got to go on the Star Ferry once, you're probably quite willing to pay $10 or so to do so. Whereas if you're a commuter, every 50 cents the, or the Star Ferry goes up in price is going to make you rethink whether you want to take it. Well, indeed. I mean, Danny, I think the point here is whether we perceive Star Ferry as that open tour bus, open top tour bus, or whether we look at it as a mode of commute within Hong Kong or part of the overall transport system. If we negate the fact that it's not part of the overall transport system and it is just for the tourists to go around, then yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of pricing that would be perfectly okay. Other thing which Star Ferry has probably not explored, which is done in many countries. So, for example, if you go to Venice today um, and you take a water taxi in, in Venice, there are two prices. If you're a local resident, then there is a, a local pricing, which is commute pricing. And if you're a tourist, then you pay a much higher uh, price for uh, taking I was wondering about that, but you're gonna, you're, you get into endless problems and controversies, wouldn't you, if you tried to do that? Well, not exactly. It's it's about a it's about a pricing issue. I mean, most of these cities they use a day pass system, and I think day pass system is where the tourists are much more willing to you know just buy uh, a day pass for just for the convenience of it, so that they don't have the hassle of paying for individual transport or knowing the fares for individual system. Hong Kong does not have an industry wide or transport wide uh, day pass system at the moment, and I think that is. From a tourist point of view, that is really uh, uh, an inconvenience. So yes, you can take an octopus, you can use your octopus everywhere, but then, you know, the way the money runs out of octopus, you have no control, you have no idea how much you are paying for what services, especially for tourists who don't have any prior knowledge. So I think that is the, something that we have to keep in mind. It's, the, it's not just the price, it's the convenience of the entire ecosystem. When I check in into some of the European cities, as a part of my hotel um, check-in, they hand me over a day pass. And, and that is provided by the city and it is included in hotel prices. And then at least for one day, I can use all the transport system. And obviously, uh, that then makes me familiar with the transport system and I go and buy for the next day or the third day, whatever. You know, so, but that makes the, it very convenient. We don't have anything like that. And that is also because of the fact that we have very disparate companies running different parts of the transport system. We have MTR, we've got KMB, Bravo, uh, you know, and, and Safari, and they're all kind of competing with each other. And I think transport competition is a fantastic thing, but from a city perspective, from a mobility perspective, there needs to be some level of coordination between, and we have a great example as Octopus, which is currently working 
as a common platform between across transport operators. And I think this is where the government policy has to support the entire industry, come up with products. Those are more conducive to the tourists coming to Hong Kong instead of fostering competition within the transport modes. All right. I have a question here from uh, listener Jeff. He, uh, he just wants to know how much will the uh, large new property development on the central waterfront close to the central piers help to increase ridership on the ferries? Um, he says, I believe it will be completed in the next few years. And uh, that's from Jeff. Um, Professor Chang, do you have any idea or, or Mr. Jane? I understand. Well, I think that maybe, maybe um, Professor Chung first. Maybe understand there is a huge development in the areas, uh, not far away from from the piers, uh, uh, the South Ferry piers. And I also understand there will be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, walk uh, connectivity uh, pathway uh, from these new development to the central piers. I want to go back to uh, James' comments about uh, the. The day, the day, the day pass of the transport, and the South Ferry actually is offering a monthly ticket uh, to the regular customer, the, the regular commuter. I believe they should be local commuter. Uh, talking about uh, 190 dollars uh, per month, uh, they they can use the pass uh, to take as many trips as possible in the uh, in the South Ferry. I also agree that uh, we do not have. A mutual, uh, a path that can use a different transport in Hong Kong except the octopus cap. And I think that, that could facilitate, uh, the, the, the tourist, uh, you know, uh, mobility. In All Hong right, Kong. Uh, Professor Chung, I'm afraid that we're out of time. We have to leave it here for now. Okay. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Stephen Chung, the chairman of the Transport Advisory Committee. Also many thanks to Alec Jane, managing director of Transconsult Asia. After 9 o'clock news, we'll look at the newly set up task force on promoting and branding Hong Kong. Now here's a quick look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day with a top temperature of 23 degrees. Right now it's 21 degrees. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Danny Gitchings and me, Janice Wong. In the next 25 minutes or so, we'll look at how the newly set up task force on promoting and branding Hong Kong is doing. The task force is made up of uh, government officials, 14 local partner organisations that are mostly statutory bodies, and also 22 unofficial members, which includes representatives from a number of industries ranging from banking, property development, and to film and media. The group, as the name suggests, will try to come up with ways to promote Hong Kong after the last few years of COVID isolation. Now to discuss the way forward, we're joined in the studio, in our Admiralty studio, by a member of the task force, Johannes Hack, the president of the German Chamber of Commerce. Also on the line is Brett Free, principal of BMF Consulting. He's also the former deputy director of the government's information services department. Good morning, Mr. Hack. Good morning, Janice. And, good morning, Danny. Uh, and uh, good morning, uh, Mr. Free. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, Mr. Hack, uh, the uh, task force on promoting and branding Hong Kong just had its first meeting. Can you uh, tell us uh, what was discussed? Uh, I, I can try. Uh, some things possibly maybe slightly confidential still. Um, so we sat together uh, for two and a half hours, which was much longer than initially uh, supposed to be. Uh, obviously a sign that there was a lot to discuss. Uh, we kicked off with presentations by the various departments of the government on what their thoughts are on, on rebranding and promoting Hong Kong. Um, some of that was, was previously known, things like Oasis. Uh, other parts, I think, will be announced today by the chief executive. And then after that, we had what I thought was the, 
that the more vital part was actually discussing together with all the various non-official members what our thoughts are on, on where the government is taking this and how this may be viewed. Sorry, can I follow up? So you're saying that some of what you were discussed yesterday you expect to be announced by the chief executive today? Uh, in terms of, of, of parts of the campaign that uh, will be launched um, to, to promote Hong Kong, I, my understanding is that that will be this uh, launch ceremony today. My understanding is that the chief executive will be, will be giving further details on, on that campaign, yes. And how frequently are you going to meet? Uh, we haven't actually um, talked about that. I think one of the things we did talk about was that a, a large meeting like the one, the kickoff meeting we had, um, probably is not always going to be the ideal format because there's frankly just too many people. We were about roughly 50 people in that room. Um, so one of the thoughts we had, which the financial secretary who chairs the meeting uh, took up, was that we get into breakout sessions and that we evolve into smaller meetings um, that will then focus on particular topics. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you next, because looking at the list of members, you, you are an incredibly large group. <laughs> and you, you obviously discovered in the first meeting already that you, you are basically too large as one group, right? Well, I, I think for, for the first meeting, what's important was to get everybody together and, and to come to some common understanding of what this task force is trying to achieve. Um, obviously, even that is something you can have different views on. And so I think to have that large meeting was, was important. But if you're actually going to achieve something, then clearly smaller groups will be able to take individual topics further, faster. So, so did you manage to reach a consensus on that, on what this task force hopes to achieve? Uh, I think we, we, we certainly have a broad consensus in the sense that we're all obviously keen on promoting and rebranding Hong Kong. I mean, obviously, we would not otherwise be part of that task force. All right. um, I think we also have a, and this was important, I think, for, for some of us from the chambers and from sort of from the outside view. I think we also have a, an in, initial understanding that the perception of Hong Kong has suffered. So there is an issue that needs to be addressed. And, and that it's an issue that is uh, probably more a medium term issue. That it's not simply a question of saying, okay, the borders are now fully reopened and everything's going to be fine again. Um, in specifics, clearly, given the number of topics, uh, there will continue to be varying ideas on how to approach specific issues going forward. All right, uh, let's go to uh, you, Mr. Free. Um, you've, you've, of course, uh, done a lot of work over the years to promote Hong Kong. Um, what do you think should be Hong Kong's strategy? Uh, well, actually, just let me follow up a bit on the uh, Johannes's comment about what might be mentioned today, because I've just seen some stuff come through on the on the post, which might be helpful. Um, apparently, the CE and the FS will be announcing details today of the. 500,000 airline ticket giveaway, which is good. And the FS will, is also apparently slated to explain a little bit more about what they're going to do in terms of promoting and publicity. So later today, probably we'll have some more clarity on what's going on uh, on there. Uh, and in terms... Sorry? Yeah, you know, I mean, of course, the airline tickets is nothing really to do with this task force. That was something that's been in the pipeline for a long time. Yes, but, um, well... It, it, it has, because the Tourism um, Board is a member of Hong Kong Inc., which is a member of the of the task force, and the Secretary for Culture, Sports and Tourism sits on the uh, this new task force as well. So, of course, it's part of what they might do to uh, relaunch Hong Kong. Um, getting people back to Hong Kong is absolutely critical to that um, mission, and 500,000 free tickets, I think, is a pretty uh, good incentive to do that. Um, in terms of the uh, 
strategy moving forward? I mean, that's a very big and broad uh, question. Um, one of the things which I'm very interested in is, is the event sector, uh, and I think that staging large-scale um, impactful events is something which can help um, regain Hong Kong's uh, mojo, if you want to put it that way, help Hong Kong put Hong Kong back on the map. Um, I think in terms of government structure and approach, one of the things I've always been um, urging the government to do is to rethink the level of uh, representation we have overseas. Um, we do have overseas uh, economic and trade offices uh, staffed by uh, colleagues at relatively junior level. I think we should do more to uh, prepare offices for overseas postings and perhaps even look outside the traditional sources of people uh, in the government, which is the administrative grade, to staff our offices overseas. Um, I think also we need to do more to re-engage the media, and that would involve the principal officials being much more visible than they have traditionally been in dealing with the press, both the international press and the local press, because we do have a very strong uh, core of international media in Hong Kong. We've got a regional headquarters of Bloomberg, of Reuters, of AFP, of CNBC. It's got a big presence here, CNN as well. And we should be using or engaging those media guys at the very top level to get our story out on those platforms as well. When you were talking about big events, I mean, it's almost a shame Mike Rouse is not on the show this morning. It brings to mind Harbourfest, and the, I mean, it didn't necessarily work out so well. The attempts after after SARS to organise um, big um, rock concerts in Hong Kong, and is that the sort of thing you're thinking of here? Daniel, I think what, what we need to do, what, what we need is a bit of courage and a bit of creativity and a bit of bravado. We need to make a big impact with... Uh, events in Hong Kong and I think you mentioned Mike and that was also in the back of my mind uh, last night when I was thinking about today um, yes Harbourfest did encounter certain problems um, after it was staged but you know it did create noise and it did create impact and it did tell the world that Hong Kong was back and back with a bang and that's the kind of thing which we need to be thinking about um, now as Johanna said uh, just a minute ago, this new group, this new task force, it consists of 48 people. And that's 48 people in a room with 48 different ideas, probably. So breaking that down into smaller groups and concentrating on um, certain aspects which, of which they can sort of contribute their expertise is, is probably a good idea. But I would think that one of the groups should be looking at what a big impact events we can bring to Hong Kong, not just to announce to the world that we're back, but to keep uh, coming back to Hong Kong so that we can gradually rebuild trust and confidence in Hong Kong being open and welcoming again. So, Mr. Hack, what's your view? I mean, uh, just now, Mr. Free, he's suggesting uh, uh, launching more impactful events. What, what do you think should be Hong Kong's priority in promoting itself? I, I fully concur with that idea of, of sort of a big bang event. And I think one of the things that where perceptions may still differ is that seen from the outside. When I go to, to Germany, I've been to Germany recently, when I talk to other people, 
the perception at the moment of Hong Kong is still as a close place. You, you have to be clear about that. Um, the fact that the COVID relaxations were so piecemeal, bit by bit by bit, eventually led to people in the West thinking, gee whiz, it's just not open. And, and the mask wearing also contributes to that. That's an aspect where clearly it, it doesn't exactly create at the moment a welcoming atmosphere. So I think some of us in that task force made the point that having a really large bash event, I suggested ABBA, but that just shows my age, um, something that is really, truly massive, but that is done when all the when all the when all the restrictions are effectively lifted that that would be truly helpful because it can create that one impactful moment of saying okay we are back on stage now and this is follow up on the, the mask issue which is a contentious issue and in fact there's an exchange going on among uh, listeners on our facebook page about it um, but you think uh, st- still having the mask mandate does contribute to this clo- uh, uh, even if it's an incorrect a closed image of hong kong internationally Personally, I do. I think um, personally, obviously, this is a cultural thing, and I'm not going to opine on what other people's culture is, but certainly for for my culture and most other Europeans, the masks don't come naturally. They were shield when when that was required. Um, I guess a lot of us think that it's not no longer necessary, really. And visually coming to a country where people are wearing masks and seeing them on photos wearing masks and standing around wearing masks creates a barrier. I think there's there's little doubt about that. And just but one other thought, I was in Korea um, two weeks ago. In Korea, the, the requirement of mask wearing had been lifted. So on the streets, 95% of people were still wearing them and 5% were not. And I think the 95% were pretty happy and the 5% were also happy in that. Well, hang on then. If you're talking about perceptions, and I don't know, I think we realistically expect that uh, something similar will happen in Hong Kong when mm. the mask mandate is, is lifted, a, a very high proportion of um, Hong Kong people will continue to wear masks. So uh, when it comes to perceptions, there's still going to be images of Hong Kong with, it, with uh, maybe not everybody, but a uh, high proportion of people in, in, in the photos wearing masks. So not, not much is going to change that. Is it? I think in terms of perceptions, probably a lot will, because there's a difference between forced to wear a mask and people voluntarily saying, I choose to wear one. And if you've got on a photo of 100 people, two or three people not wearing a mask, that's two or three people. And you're going to notice them because they're the two or three who stand out. And that brings back the idea, okay, this is voluntary. You can choose to do so, but you don't need to do so. Uh, Brett Free, where where do you stand in terms of uh, how much effect the mask mandate has on perceptions of Hong Kong internationally? Oh, well, I've said already um, previously that uh, one of the things we've got to do if we're really uh, telling the world that we're open is, first of all, all of the COVID um, restrictions uh, that apply to Hong Kong have to go. You can't say we're open if people need to have tests before they come in or they were uh, subject to possible, you know, uh, quarantine if they tested positive. That's all. That's mostly gone now, though. PCR tests still do apply for people coming in from the mainland of Taiwan, I think. So that's that's a big thing. All of those COVID measures um, should go before people will start really thinking about coming back. And I do agree that the masks, in terms of optics, do provide a um, an image of Hong Kong as a, as still as a sort of closed off and to a somewhat extent scared society. So that, that as Johanna said, that won't change quickly it'll probably be gradual but in the conversations i have with my local friends um and their conversations in cantonese not english a lot of them are are, are basically fed up with the masks as well so we might 
we, we might be pleasantly surprised and we might see more people walking on the street without masks than what we, what we think might be the case. All right, so let's go back to uh, the new task force for a moment. Uh, um, looking at the makeup of the new uh, government task force, Mr. Free, on uh, promoting and branding Hong Kong, it's um, got officials, it's got representatives from a wide range of industries. Um, what do you think of this uh, mix? I mean, earlier, of course, uh, Mr. Hack said it's a uh, bit big. What's your view? Well, it is big. Um, I think, uh, actually, looking at it... Um from my previous bureaucratic uh, eyes, this to me seems to be a combination of two groups that used to exist under the previous uh, chief executive. There was a group which he had uh, a group of, which called the um, CE's uh, Council of Strategic Advisors, something like that. I mean, there was another um, group which was the uh, high-level group on external promotion. Um, that in, the external promotion group included all the Hong Kong Inc partners and the respective principal officials. And the um, strategic advisor group included one or two of the people on the list uh, today. So it seems that they've sort of combined those two into a larger um, brains trust, if you want to put it that way. There's quite a big, quite a broad representation in terms of the individuals on the group. Uh, we have a film director, uh, Mabel Chern, we've got a few people from the media, and then we've also got a lot of people who you would expect to see on their bankers, uh, people involved in industry, film academics, etc. Um, in terms of being able to provide uh, input, uh, you know, constructive input, of course, um, that's going to happen. But there are already groups which exist which provide this kind of input to the government as well. Uh, Johannes sits on the International Business Committee, which is now chaired by the Financial Secretary. That, that contains all the international chambers of commerce in Hong Kong, and they would definitely be feeding back uh, in, information and views to, to the government. And then all of the Hong Kong Inc. partner organisations are, are already plugged into the, into the system as well. I think, uh, again, as Johannes mentioned, one of the key aspects of this task force is how is it actually going to work and what's it going to be tasked to achieve? That's not sort of been articulated yet, and that's what I'd like to sort of know more about. Now, we've been talking so far about the effect of uh, COVID on uh, Hong Kong's international image and um, uh, the issue of the, ma the mask mandate and how, how much difference lifting that will make. But we all know is, is COVID is not the only factor that is impinging on Hong Kong's international image. There have, have been political factors over the last few years as well. And uh, you do now have groups. Uh, Brett Free, you were, you were talking about... Um, beefing up Hong Kong's economic and trade offices, but you do have groups overseas now which act actively campaign against um, any cooperation with um, Hong Kong economic and trade offices, which you never had in the past. So uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that sort of side of the issue, Brett Free? Well, yes, you're right. Some of the ETOs are suffer, um, uh, subject to protest action, particularly in the States, um, uh, for what we call cultural outreach programmes. I would say that the ETOs would still have to push ahead and, um, and do that work. Just because people are turning up to uh, protest that action doesn't mean that we shouldn't go ahead with our uh, cultural outreach work. Um, so that's one point. Um, second point is, uh, it gets back to what I said, um, I think it's interesting actually, we have Eden Woon on this new um, 
task force, and he's the current president of AMCHAN. Um, but the office in Washington uh, has been without a chief representative for quite some time now. So this gets back to what I mentioned before about beefing up the capabilities, the training, the exposure, perhaps even developing a cadre of officers within the government who are capable and trained and well-equipped to deal with the type of issues that you mentioned in our offices overseas. So you're saying the office in Washington, presumably you mean the Economic Trader Office or whatever it's called, that has been without a chief representative, Hong Kong's uh, office in, in Washington has been without a chief representative for some time now? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a job there which is called the Commission of the USA. That job has been vacant for some time. Um, so if we want to re-engage in America, obviously there's uh, sort of global political considerations to that. But if we're wanting to re-engage in America and we want to address some of those uh, protest issues that you've just mentioned or, or, or alternative voice issues, you need a, a, a fairly strong, vocal, visible representative in that major economy. All right. I have an email here from our listener, Alonzo. He says, uh, on the broader subject of promoting Hong Kong to kickstart a revival in tourism, our government and our flagship airline, Cathay Pacific, should view the excellent recently launched TV commercial with the slogan World Class by Singapore Airlines. We need to produce a similarly effective and attractive campaign. And uh, that email is from Alonzo. And another email coming in to backchat at rthk.hk from Hugh. Hugh says, what really was the ROI, ROI after the big event? The people who want this always have self-interest in mind. How about really thinking of a long-running run, plan that would make us genuinely vibrant, vibrant again? Um, Mr. Free or, or Mr. Hack, uh, any any comment on that? I mean, what do you think? A, a sort of a effective, attractive campaign like Singapore Airlines, as suggested by Alonso? Well, as a as a European, again, I've, I, I keep pointing out to the government here. There's on YouTube. There's an extremely good uh, campaign by the Swiss, uh, No Drama, which uh, has got 48 million views, and uh, that seems to have been pretty effective. So obviously having a, a clever campaign can help. I think, though, in, in terms of really long-term strategy and viability, what's going to be more important is to position Hong Kong again as, as the place it's traditionally been, where, where East meets West. Certainly for the Europeans, it's, it's ultra important to have Hong Kong as a place from which you can reach out to mainland China. We, we mustn't forget that travel to mainland China has been even more difficult. So for the Europeans, it's important to have with Hong Kong a base from which they can reach out. I think that's important. I think it's important to, um, to, to address those issues, which we briefly talked about uh, earlier, as there will be, there will be questions asked on, on NSL and on press freedom and on other issues, which you have to be able to address because they're not going to go away. And if you want to engage, then you need to have answers for that. I think that all is, is a very long haul thing. And I think that's really, again, that's the, the key thing that probably in the task force is going to be important to say, this is no quick fix 500,000 ticket issue. It's, it's going to be something that we have to be in for a couple of years to, to re-establish Hong Kong fully. And it's going to take a lot of effort. And it starts with the, the, the clarity that there is an issue there. Mr. Hack, so from your home country, Germany, do you think do you think perceptions of Hong Kong have changed in Germany over the past few years, and not not just as we were talking about just now, not just because of COVID, because of other factors as well. 
They have. I, I think that's that, and that's clearly also something that was that was raised at the task force. Oh, um, you, you did discuss this yesterday. Well, we, we didn't in general we, terms. Yeah. We, we didn't discuss specifically the. the yeah. but, but what we did discuss, and I think that's the key issue, is one country, two systems. It always has the one country, and I mean, we're all clear. This is China. There's no question about that. Um, so and so, from our perspective, that's been important. Um, in Germany, that, that one country point has maybe got to the point where if you ask an average German, will you get locked down in Hong Kong as you did in Shanghai, he's likely to answer yes, because it's very difficult watching it from, from 12,000 uh, kilometers away to distinguish fully. So we may have in, in Europe gotten too much onto the side of one country and it'll be important to say, okay, look, there is a big difference still between mainland China and Hong Kong and they work under different rules and under different, uh, uh, different jurisdictions. Uh, and to make that point clear, it used to be clear, it's no longer that clear. That's that maybe explains something that's been slightly puzzling me where I was looking at this long, long list of members of the uh, task force, it includes the uh, Secretary for Constitutional and Mainland Affairs. Well, what has the Secretary for Constitutional and Mainland Affairs got to do with um, promoting tourism and so on? But you, you, maybe you say that's where the, the issue of um, t talking about one country, two systems may come in. Clearly, I'm not going to find on, on, on who constitutes the task force from the from the side of the government. Um, again, I think what, what, what certainly Hong Kong, being an integral part of, of China, needs to understand how it is seen abroad as a, a conduit into China. And a conduit into is different from just being part of China. And I think anything that aids that effort of making sure one country, yes, but also two, two systems, any, anybody who's on the task force who can help, help in that is going to be beneficial. Uh, Brett Free, what, what are your opinions on this point? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, if, if you're talking about um, SCMA being on the uh, task force, um, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think actually probably he needs to be there because part of the... Um, while this task force seems to be primarily focused on the international um, aspect, obviously... Uh, the crucial, one of the crucial aspects of the international reopening is the access that Hong Kong provides to the mainland and how the government can facilitate that access. People, if you talk to Chambers of Commerce, one of the things which they just really love and are very keen to sort of see developed further is the Greater Bay Area and access to the Greater Bay Area. But we've been talking about that for years now, but some of the key things that the Chambers are very interested in the flow of talent, uh, the flow of money, the flow of um, data, etc. they're still sort of not really being ironed out. So some sort of, you know, something like visa-free travel for, you know, permanent residents in Hong Kong to, to the GBA area would be something which international business would welcome, I'm sure. Setting up of bank accounts uh, in the mainland, making it easier for business to access their, their capital there, um, small businesses in particular, those types of things are very important um, for Hong Kong's value proposition as a as a conduit. All right, um, Mr. Free, I know you need to rush off very soon. I just, yeah. just want to get your comment on uh, um, our caller's comment. Uh, he says that China no longer issue visa to foreign tourists, certainly, and this uh, certainly has affected Hong Kong as uh, tourists cannot enter China from Hong Kong. Um, and that's a, a comment from David, a, a caller. Um, any, any comment on that, Mr. Free, before you go? Well, I mean, it's entirely uh, up to the mainland authorities when they want to start issuing visas to 
foreigners if that is, if that in fact is a, a case in point. But of course, access to the mainland from Hong Kong is incredibly important, not just for the business perspective, but also for tourism as well, because uh, you know the tourism board would be promoting and pushing Hong Kong eventually as sort of co- uh, the gateway to the, the GBA area. Um, but you know, it's up to the mainland authorities to determine the timing and the scope of, of their visa issuing policies. All right, so Mr. Free, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Brett Free, Principal of BMF Consulting and a former Deputy Director of the Government's Information Services Department. Um, let's just go briefly back to uh, Mr. Hack. Um, do you have any response to what uh, Mr. Free just uh, had to say about uh, travellers? And about um, the, still the difficulty of getting visas to visit China from Hong Kong? Well, I just got my visa. And I have to say, there was a super smooth process um, pre-Chinese New Year. I think there were pretty long queues, but this was really smooth and, and well handled. So, uh, so that good. was a step forward. But you're going, to, you're going for business. I, I mean, am going for there's business. There's still no tourist visas. There's, there's, there's still no tourist visas. And, and again, clearly, I mean, obviously, that's up to Maine and China. I think it's going to be super important because, I, my personal opinion, Maine and China should and needs to re-engage with the world. There's, there's no ifs and buts about that. You can only get ahead if you actually go places and see things. So I think it's going to be helpful for them to have tourists again. Um, so let's hope that middle of the year perhaps they can get back to doing that because people are going to be keen to go. It's been a long time. All right, uh, Mr. Hack, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'm sure we'll have uh, plenty of opportunity to uh, discuss this topic uh, in the future. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Johannes Hack, the president of the German Chamber of Commerce and a member of the government's task force on promoting and branding Hong Kong. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Danny Gittings and producer Yuki. Now, here's the weather, mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day with a top temperature of around 23 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies becoming fresh occasionally strong offshore and the outlook windier and cool with a few rain patches over the next couple of days 21 degrees at the moment relative humidity 76 percent for regulated tenancies of subdivided units landlords must submit a notice of tenancy in 60 days and not overcharge water and electricity etc 